July 1991 in Havana. It is Nelson Mandela's first trip outside Africa since his release from 27 years of prison. But why would the legend of struggle against oppression decide that the first person he wants to thank for helping to end apartheid is Fidel Castro, the very man who is regarded in the West as an oppressor of his own people? Whatever. We haven't figured it out by now. We're never going to figure it out. Yeah. All right, Dan, I'm all caloried up. I'm all biscuited up. Ready to go. Got my protein. Got coffee. I'm ready to podcast, uh-huh. baby. Uh-huh. Let's go. Um, another beautiful day in England, Dan. Yeah, the sun's come out. Mm. It's nice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's been very nice. My spinach is going nuts. Um, yeah. yeah. It yeah. seems like the whole country's been washed away by torrential rain, and then we don't seem to get very much of it. Yeah, I yeah. keep seeing these headlines that are like, <laughs> I don't know, verging on apocalyptic. <laughs> and, uh, and then we don't get any of the rain. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure what happens. Everything fizzles out over like yeah. East Kent, uh, West Kent, I suppose. Fucking West and Kent. As soon as it gets down here. Yeah. It's funny, right? Because like so much of of the whole climate change thing, like the weather back home is just like, blistering and dry and really windy and that causes a bunch of fires and it's like that for like two years in a row or something and then the fire will burn away everything all the brush and everything and then there'll be torrential rain for like one year for like a week and that'll cause mudslides because there's nothing to stop it and then it's just blistering heat again in the process because everything grows back at the rain just continues and continues out here it just seems like it's just completely random (laughs) it's just like you'll have you know showers really heavy showers for like five minutes one day a thunder storm and then it's sunny again and then now it's cloudy again and then it's just boom it's crazy climate change haven't put i haven't figured it out yet mm-hmm, it's pretty mm-hmm, odd mm-hmm. tell you what yeah. <sighs> but yes it's all going very well yeah it's all going very well folks all going very well i don't i don't think i have much to update everybody i don't on. have much to update either i don't hmm. think we're I mean, in I a suppose... bit i mean, I, mean <laughs> I have no idea when this episode is coming out yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and um from our perspective on our timeline, we mm. recorded relatively recently. Yes. Um, the listener doesn't need to know anything that's going on. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, here's here's a peek behind the curtain. Dan and I are both going away very soon, so we're attempting to podcast our little, our little socks off to try and uh, get ahead while we can. Um, so, yeah, you might be getting some podcast fatigue in the near future, but <laughs> we're going to be doing our best. Um yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, but we don't have to release all the episodes together, so there can be like <laughs> yeah. varying levels of energy and fatigue. Yeah. Rather than weeks. just like a gradual decline. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless the whole history of this podcast has been a gradual decline, I'm not sure. <laughs> or just a flatlining. I prefer to think of it like that. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Where I go from being a primitivist and then back to a Maoist, and then now I'm just uh-huh. kind of free floating. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Erratic um, ideological shifts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't know. England's still, you know, England. Everything's still kind of kicking over here. Um, things are good, I suppose. Um, Dan, 
I think we should just get right into this one. Let's just jump in. Possibly, possibly in. because I have nothing else to say. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> um, going to become tiresome otherwise. Yeah. A faithful and very handsome listener, Dan, last week, uh, sent us a documentary. Mm, God um, bless them. God bless them. And uh, you may have seen the title in this week's title of the episode. It is... Hopefully, Cuba, Africa, Revolution, three exclamation points uh, administered sporadically throughout that title. And it's the story, Dan, it's a BBC documentary, um, so it's a bit cursory, but it's basically the story of Cuban intervention in several African wars of independence, anti-colonial struggles. Um, and I'll tell you what, Dan, it rocked. Yeah. <laughs> it was very it cool. was quite. It was quite a friendly... Mm. Um, Engagement with the subject matter, I suppose. Was, I mean, from yeah. the documentary standpoint, like, mm. it was presented as here the Cubans, uh, the the good guys, the almost good guys. The, the heroes, the, the heroes of the yeah. story, the freedom fighters, yeah. um, wanting nothing more than, than to share their their liberation with. I mean, the rest of the third world, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It was very. It was. A, it was kind of a swashbuckling adventure, if I may. You get uh, some really cool stories of just kind of just pure adventurism, but then you also just get some awesome solidarity. Um, some of the best characters of the 20th century show up. Some of the worst ghouls, classic, of course <laughs> they do. Some of the biggest tragedies. Um, but all in all, overall, it rocked. And one of my notes is just Cuba rocks. So we'll get into why Cuba rocks, I suppose. Um, yeah, I was thinking, talking about this a little bit beforehand, trying to mm. work out what the structure of the documentary really is. Yeah. Um, and it's a peculiar one in the sense that, well, it complements some of our interactions with this period of history and this part of the world that we've already had, mm. in the sense that it, it, um, I mean, it recapitulates for us, but it introduces to the, doc, to the viewer of the documentary a lot of background for um, the history of colonialism and the post-colonial struggles that took place after a lot of African countries gained independence. Um, it really does quite a solid job of setting the scene yeah. to the extent that you're suddenly like, isn't this documentary supposed to be about Cuba? But <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when, when's Che going to show up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you get some pretty awesome interviews. You get some interviews with Fidel, which, as we were saying, we don't know if those were part of something else or he, or if he was just being interviewed by, like, I don't know, some Cuban TV program or something, and he's talking about his exploits. You get some awesome interviews with the, like, actual people, the Cubans who were on the ground, like, commanding these forces that are just like these guys are so cool i don't want to find too much but like they rock and then you get some pretty ghoulish interviews with like american cia guys who we've come across before uh, in some of our previous reading and um some apartheid era lovely south african fellas um so it's a nice balance i suppose i'm mm. kind of a little bit like why did they interview some of these people they're just outwardly admitting hey i'm evil look at me wish we still had apartheid damn that was great um but overall, yeah, overall, it paints a very interesting story. Mm. Um, I think the, list, the the watcher of the documentary is meant to be able to discriminate between yeah. who is a good guy and who is a bad guy in these circumstances. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because they kind of use Cuba as a, like, um, they distinguish them. It's, it's still pretty bourgeois. So, like, they don't want to be like, hey, you know, the USSR was pretty neat, huh? So they use Cuba to be like... The friendly socialists, the cool socialists. Don't you want to be one of these guys traveling around the world in disguises, you know, shooting bad guys or whatever? Um, but yeah, I, yeah, it's the kind of like 
Che Guevara t-shirt version. Exactly. Funny of century history. Yeah. And the like you, you know, constantly come across the like Lenin cap wearers and maybe it's like the Fidel cap wearers. Um, So I suppose we should start with our good friend, Dan. Uh, This is so sad. We've talked about Patrice Lumumba before in um, the Congo. Congo. Yeah, but I mean, in the first. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to figure out which part it was. I think it was the second part. Yeah, in the second part of our Devil's Chessboard series, in which we kind of got the story of Patrice Lumumba's rise and fall in the Congo um, as being the first kind of like post-colonial leader of um, said country. Um, And... We get a story here. I, you know, I'll tell you what. I'll be honest. I had no idea that the Cubans went in, like, to help out with, like, that revolutionary struggle. I had absolutely no idea. Um, but I suppose we should start it off just by kind of, like, recapping quickly. Like, Patrice Lumumba, um, anti-colonial leader in what was on the Congo. He's uh, not super happy with the Belgians. You get a pretty awesome story in this of um, the Belgian king at the time, you know, kind of, coming down to the Congo to bestow independence upon these, you know, uh, fawning, very happy to see him, Congolese people, um, and uh, him giving a speech being like, you're welcome for doing this. This is, we're doing this because we're better than you. And we've realized it's the right thing to do. And then you, you know, Patrice Lumumba <laughs> in the middle of that. <laughs> huh. I don't know. Yeah, the, yeah, the, con- the content of the King's speech is basically that, like, our work in the process of colonizing this country for the past 100 years or what have you and ruthlessly exploiting it was all actually part of a process which was leading the country to be able to then have its independence. Yeah, exactly. um, Independence in the Congo is sort of like a a natural outgrowth of uh, the the great deed that was Belgian uh, (laughs) colonization. The enlightened uh, despotism of the Belgian kings. It's so gross. And so, anyway, their king is, like, up there giving a speech in his, like, lame king outfit. Um, And nobody knew Patrice Lumumba was going to do this, but Patrice Lumumba let him finish, and then he got up and kind of, like, took the mic. We didn't take the mic, but he, like, got up and just gave a speech that he wrote as the Belgian king or whatever was talking his shit, and then he just basically said, um, you haven't given us anything. We're lifting ourselves out of the mess that you guys have made, and all we remember you for is just being, like, demons and, like, Satan. But, you know, he was much more polite than that, but he was just like, okay, this is actually how it is. We don't owe you anything. Um, and there's also a really cool story when they were both on the way to that speech giving, like, there was, like, a parade or whatever. Um, uh, a guy in the crowd, like, a Congolese guy, like, came up and grabbed the king's sword and just started dancing with it. And it's like, oh, that is so cool. Because mm-hmm. everyone thought he was going to kill the king, but he just wanted to dance. It's like, oh, it's almost worse if you're the king. <laughs> That's pretty brutal. Um, but, yeah, you get, a, you get a, pretty, a pretty different view, I think, of everything from this than we got um, from the Congo in the Devil's Chessboard stuff. It's definitely a different version of the story. And I yeah. guess that the two sources are telling different stories, so it's not a surprise that they get different ones. Mm. Um, there's definitely some ways in which we can update the narrative that's presented in this yeah. with some uh, <laughs> slightly more in-depth material about the operations of the CIA that we heard about in the Devil's Chessboard. Yeah. And at the same time, you get a slightly fuller picture of the sort of like political and the economic situation and the circumstances um, that surrounded the sort of like both um, Lumumba's accession to power and then mm. his eventual fall yeah. six months later or so. Mm. Um, yeah, one of the one of the Lumumba allies who is um, 
interviewed as part of this documentary basically just says that he recounts that story of the supposed insult that the Mumumba is supposed to have committed by giving this speech. This sort of like, uh, I don't know, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's how it actually is. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Speaking truth to power, I was going to say like bile ridden or like what yeah. have you, but like, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and this, this, uh, witness to the events basically portrays it as it was this moment that um the belgian king decided he was going to get his revenge kind of thing yeah. it was almost from this very moment in time that um the mumbo was set on this trajectory that was going to see to his downfall although mm. there were quite a lot of intervening moments in between mm. um Lumumba went to. We didn't. We didn't come across this in the in the Devil's Chessboard book, but Lumumba went to America, presumably mm. in the oh, or, yeah, in right. the autumn of 1960. Yeah, I think met the president, um, and also John Foster Dulles pops up in this, not named, mm. but um, and, like a specter. Yeah, <laughs> but. Um, his 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 position in government is referenced, and mm. apparently they met, and um, Foster Dulles came away with not a particularly um, nice image of Lumumba, I suppose, yeah. presumably because Lumumba did quite the same thing that he did to uh, the same thing. He did the same thing to Eisenhower and Foster Dulles as he did to the Belgian king, and uh, hurt their told, egos. It, <laughs> quite hurt their feelings. <laughs> And um, yeah, yeah. And so, so um, there were more. He he was making he was making enemies um, enemies all over the place. Um, yeah, yeah. Can I just say too? Like, it's really interesting because you get. If we're gonna do a little bit of armchair psychology again of how these people, these sickos, because the CIA guy Larry. Something. Devlin, Larry Devlin, yes, I believe, uh, who was in charge of like the C- the Congolese CIA headquarters, the station there, um, who would basically go on to like organize America's role in having Lumumba assassinated. He's interviewed in this, and he gets a lot of airtime. And he's just another one of these sickos who's made it to like their 150th birthday and is just decomposing before your eyes. Um, but you can tell he feels he feels no regret. But like one of the ways that these these people. Um, try and i if i i think like make sense of what they've done is like by retroactively making these people out to be less than human like the lumumbas of the world and one of the ways they do that is learning not larry niven larry <laughs> yeah, Devlin. Like <laughs> um he like kind of like dehumanizes lumumba is he says something along the lines of right like um you know, he had no idea what he was doing getting into the country, didn't know what visas were. And as soon as he showed up, you know, he uh, asked for prostitutes to be sent to his room. It's like, I guarantee that you that did not happen. happen. <laughs> it's like Lumumba's like this, like, and they keep calling him like the clerk, you know, the clerk instead of like his actual title. They're just like this, this African clerk. And it's just like, you know, it's so funny because we saw that with Mozadeg in, um, in the devil's chessboard where they were like, he sat with his legs crossed as I'm sitting right now, actually in the chair. Um, and you know, he's just like a little, he's just a little kid. You know, he, he didn't know he got caught up in the big world of politics and it's so sick, dude. It's so like, you know, you just, Oh, these little guys, these silly little clerks. I think that really like, other than them actually killing Lumumba was the thing that set me off. Like, 
oh, this is sick. These people are so gross, dude. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's exactly the same kind of like paternalistic outlook that we saw from the Belgian standpoint, but just yeah. in a different guise, right? Kind of thing. Yeah. Just like these sort of childish, naive yeah. uh, Africans or South yeah. Americans or what have you, like don't know how the world works. And, yeah. I mean, and it's so stupid too, right? Because like they go up to Lumumba immediately after he gives that speech and they're like, hey man, could you apologize? And I was like ready for, I was like, come on, Lumumba, tell him how it is. Like, sock him, you know, hit him, dude. And he was just like, okay, yeah, of course, yeah. I'll apologize to him. And he went up to him and he apologized. And he was like, I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry if you're embarrassed, but I had something to say and I said it. Yeah. And it's like, well, sorry if on. your feelings were hurt. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I, he's like, I'm legitimately sorry about that. But like, give me a break and get out of my country. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, suffice it to say, things don't go too well for Lumumbo. We get a rehashed version of the toothpaste story of the poison toothpaste. And, yeah, um, yeah, that was like one of um, Devlin's lowest moments, I think, oh, in this, where he's talking yeah. about, where he's talking about um, how he is directed to. I can't remember what phrase he uses. Take care of Lumumba or something. Yeah, or like, yeah and then he's like, "That means kill yeah. him." It's like, thanks, dude. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> Um, and there's this weird like hubristic moment where he's like I had several op- I imagine like 95% of like CIA that's like maybe 100% of CIA operatives talk like this in yep. terms of like the vision that we have of the CIA where everybody is like really independent and cut off from the central system and kind of like seems to be their own kind of like king in their own yeah. fiefdom kind of thing yeah. he's like I had several operations in play that certainly would have seen to the fall of Lumumba without him having to die but like the orders came down yeah. from on high from Eisenhower himself that he had to be killed so I just had to go and do it oh, it's like oh um, god bless you for so, doing yeah. the good thing so he's rec- <laughs> recanting like... again the poison toothpaste story um <laughs> amongst other efforts to kill him, I suppose. And he's talking about having the poison toothpaste in his office and like decides that he needs to lock it in the safe because he doesn't yeah. want somebody to come in and accidentally use it. And then sort of like <laughs> thinks that he's just told the most uh, like amazing joke ever and laughs. And it's just like, this is sickening because yeah. like clearly he's talking about assassinating someone. And like, yeah, it's, it's also like, how is that? There's another aspect of like the, the, the dehumanizing aspect. Right? Yeah. hundred percent. It's like, I, I keep thinking like, obviously none of these people are ever going to get in trouble for this, but it's like, how is it okay for them to just get on a BBC documentary and be like, damn, remember that time we murdered Patrice Lumumba? It's like, I don't know. Obviously, you know, it's, mm-hmm. these people aren't going well, to Well, he doesn't admit to murdering him. He just admits to trying. Yeah, true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and being mm-hmm. an active member of the, like, conspiracy. They do kind of, once, once like, they introduce these characters, they just kind of skip over it. They just kind of, anyway, Lumumba died. They don't get into, like, the devil's chessboard-esque, like, and then, you know, there was this dramatic moment at the river where he had to go back and save his family or run. And it was just like, and then they beat him to death. It was like, anyway, moving on. Don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, bummer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, you get a fuller narrative um, in this, but then you get to the point where Lumumba escapes or leaves his sort of like in air quotes sort of house arrest kind of thing, and then mm. it's kind of like yeah, and he eventually is killed. Yeah, and you get none of that story kind of thing. Yeah, but you, what you do get from this is a bit more of the kind of like the intervening period, what the situation in the Congo was like, the process of sort of destabilization. Um, mm. The role of the UN and the UN peacekeepers in a lot of ways. Yeah, they're they're not presented in particularly nice light as they're speaking to somebody who was, as um, I think it was like um, member of the sort of Politburo responsible for African liberation or something. That was yeah. sort of like what it, it it transpires. I mean, I presume this was well known that like mm. the Soviet Union had this sort of subset of its government that was designed 
purely to foster African liberation in various countries uh, as part of their foreign policy. Sure. Um, and that guy has not very nice things to say about the UN peacekeepers, particularly... Um, or maybe maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it was a Lumumba supporter who was saying this. But the narrative that's presented is one in which um, the situation is deteriorating in the country. There was a rebellion from the army very early on not necessarily a coup initially but they just sort of like um sort of just started to operate on their own recognizance kind of thing yeah. harassing people in the street kind of thing um and there were sort of several sort of like uh secessionist movements that popped up as well so basically the, the political situation was just very rapidly deteriorating um and so um when the UN are eventually brought in after the Americans decide they probably can't actually invade. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably not going to look very good. We're going to yeah. have to go to the UN rather than NATO because that's not particularly cool. Yeah. Um, even for them yeah. <laughs> as a face-saving yeah, yeah. operation, obviously. Um, but um, the narrative around the UN that's presented is like the UN come in and then prevent Lumumba from even using his loyalists. Like members, in the, members of the armed forces still loyal to him. To maintain maintain any degree of social order, kind of thing. So, in a lot of ways, the UN contribute or the UN peacekeepers contribute to the destabilization of the country by preventing any efforts to stabilize the situation, mm. um, and then eventually end up what's presented as, as a very sort of scare quotes. Um, putting him and well, like they effectively put Lumumba under house arrest, right? We know that he ends up like um, in his presidential palace or, or ostensibly protected by UN peacekeepers. Mm. But effective, what the UN has done is just like forced him into a position of being in house arrest yeah. without that ever being requested, kind of thing. Nobody yeah. asked for that protection. Yeah. Um, well, at least the UN hasn't screwed anything else up in that part of Africa <laughs> since then. It's mm. true. It's true. It's true. Yeah. It's true. And so then, I guess, yeah, anyways, then we just get the story about the civil war that followed all of this. Yeah. Because in the CIA book, it just moves on. It's like, anyway, Lumumba died, moving on. Um, and then we get uh, the first uh, mention of our Cuban adventurists. And it's so, oh, dude, it's so cool. Because I guess, like, to, to, to set it up a bit, I mean, I guess, like, uh, the Cubans wanted to go in and send some people to support a certain faction of the rebels. Um because things certainly were not going too well for them um, in the Congo. And they decided to send, I forget exactly how many people it was, maybe like 20, 30, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they, they started, say 30, and then they up it to 150. So I'm not sure which one. But <laughs> yeah. a relatively small contingent compared Definitely to what first. will become yeah. future Cuban um, yeah. interventions in the region. Yeah, and so they want to keep it pretty secret. They don't want everyone to know that Cuba is just sending troops into this, like, you know, Cold War, hot uh, 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 civil war in, in a, like, very mineral-rich and research-rich part of the world. Um so it's, it's a pretty interesting story. I mean, they collect a group of, like, black Cubans because I guess they make the point that there was, like, a very large um, group of, like, uh, uh, I guess, like, Cong like, people descended from the Congo living in um, Cuba. And so they get a big group of these people together who they're, like, you know, we're going to send you overseas. Don't worry about it. But we're going to send you to a place where you're going to fight. And um, 
there's going to be one white guy going with you and the photos of him, he just looks kind of like an asshole. He's got like slick back hair and a briefcase and a suit and he's clean shaven. And, you know, they're kind of like, who's this guy? This guy kind of seems like a jerk. So anyway, they all get on the plane. They don't really know where they're going. And then they all get told, okay, we're going to the Congo. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go like train these rebels, give them supplies, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and by the way, that like dopey looking white guy is Shay. <laughs> it's just like, hell yeah, dude. It's so good. Dude, the photos, I urge the listener to go look up these photos because they're like, so I, the documentary plays it off like who's this mystery guy and i had no idea yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so <laughs> yeah crazy. i was in the same position i was like no what's going on here no <laughs> yeah. and then yeah yeah the interview sort of like the other the documentary flicks between the various people various cubans that they have mm. interviewed and they're all like there was this guy and we had no idea who he was i was sitting in the room with him and like and like and eventually eventually them. like yeah eventually chase like come on like stop teasing them like it's me and i take the glasses yeah. off. i just sort of superman moment takes the glasses off and everybody's like oh okay it's <laughs> so cool dude so i guess they set up base i don't remember if it was like actually in uganda or which country it was because it was just outside of congo across a they, lake. i think it's it's, it's um I don't know. We should go for yeah. Africa. It's a, it's a place. It's Tanzania. <laughs> so maybe they, maybe they're in Tanzania and then they cross a, across yeah, the border the into the east of Congo. the Congo, where um, the Lumumbaist sort of like freedom fighters have a, yeah. a base of operations. Yeah. Unfortunately, between the last time that Shay was in Africa and sort of like had got decent updates of what the situation was in um, in the Congo and this moment however many months later when they finally arrive there's been this massive shift in power and like, yeah. um the 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 congolese freedom fighters are on the back foot quite yeah. considerably yeah and i mean it, it yeah it's interesting because it's the, the way in which the cubans tried to help because it wasn't like they were sending huge military aid they bought some guns and they obviously bought some people but not enough to like take over a country let alone one as big as the congo right so they're basically just going there training these people how to fight, what you do, kind of like shooting at some barracks. Here's how you do a whole guerrilla war thing. Um, and it, it's, yeah, I mean, it seems like it goes well for a little while, but then like, it's, it's it's funny because I guess like the way people start to realize that, hey, wait a minute, some of these people are Cubans. What the hell? Is like a couple of the Cubans die and their underwear apparently says made in Cuba. And people were like, what the? Yeah. <laughs> They're like, wait a minute, made in Cuba. So they realize that some of these people are from Cuba and then everyone kind of starts to panic. And it's like the freedom fighters are like, guys, we can't we can't have the world know that like Che Guevara is here because like America will carpet bomb the entire country to get him out of here. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's sort of like it's a fun story and mm. it's um, re- replete with noble intention, yeah, and uh, a great degree of sort of like internationalist heroism. Mm. But as a functional and helpful intervention, I don't think it's a particularly good one. Yeah, um, partly because of the deteriorated situation, and also, um. Yeah, partly because it's such a small number of people and initially nobody knows that Che is amongst them. (laughs) And they eventually realize it's quite a big sort of cultural gap. Like they find it very difficult to train the Congolese. Like they find it very hard to find a way in which they can meaningfully contribute kind of thing. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, eventually Che has to just like ring up the, the leader of the rebels and be or, or send message to him is like, "Hey, I'm Che, and I'm here. Like, <laughs> come on, take us seriously." Yeah. And then, as you say, like, they all freak out. Yeah. Like, oh my god, we can't. We can't have one. We can't be responsible for having Che Guevara die <laughs> yeah. in the Congo. 
Um, nobody wants like nobody wants to be the conflict area that takes the life of like such a renowned revolutionary kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, at the same time as you say, imagine the degree of like focus this is going to bring upon the conflict yeah. if they know that Shay is here. <laughs> Shay but and also also more. Um, I mean, maybe more materially. No, I mean like uh, Larry. Devlin's reaction is particularly pointed because he's mm. like, as soon as he discovers, well, he he makes it sound like he's he he's the sole person responsible for having the brainwave that Che Guevara might be there. Yeah, um, it's like no one would listen. Nobody to me. would listen to me. They all told me I was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> they said I was mad. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, and then it, his take on the situation, as so many of the Americans' takes are, is that like, oh, there's some Cubans here. That must mean that this is like a a soviet funded operation this is a new front in the cold war and everybody freaks out and um and uh so much more attention is paid to this conflict so once again like um not a particularly helpful intervention yeah and then as you say eventually <laughs> there i mean the way that the cubans imagine them being themselves involving themselves in this conflict is a kind of as a backup force and also as like a logistics and training force but for some reason they're given this mission of attacking this um regional headquarters for the army in whatever region it is mm. that they're operating um and shay's very reluctant but also realizes that one they haven't been asked to do anything in the entire time they've been there it would be yeah. a bit awkward if they said no to this one mission <laughs> that they've been given and also they are relatively close but mm. as you say that attack doesn't go particularly well and four cubans die and then it becomes that's how yeah. they gain this evidence of the fact that um there are there are cubans cu- in the congo there are cubans in the congo <laughs> see so yeah, a guy at the other end of the radio it's like is that code for something <laughs> <laughs> yeah it does sound like the fake cia like radio broadcast yeah exactly <laughs> yeah that's like what they said when they went into guatemala yeah. the cubans are in the congo <laughs> our friends is like i gotta get the hell out of here <laughs> um so yeah that and then that kind of just kind of ends the story of the con of the cubans in the congo yeah yeah, um, yeah they are um Shay is initially reluctant to leave and yeah. eventually takes Fidel to be like, yeah, come on, come bro. on. This is probably, we're not going to make much of a contribution to the situation. We got an excellent story about a dog that they saved from the Congo, a little tiny dog that uh, I guess like Shay's translator or second in command or whatever was like, they had to, you know, it was like, a, go, go, go. We got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. And they're all running to the boat to get out of the country. And Shay was like, take my dog. We must take this dog. And it's a little tiny dog. And the guy's like, I can't, don't have any arms. And so he sticks him in his shirt. And they, they're like running away down the hill. And the like, dog's, <laughs> dog's licking, him, licking and, him. Like, He's like, Shay, I'm going to leave the dog. And he's like, don't you dare leave that dog. <laughs> I wonder what happened to that dog. Mm. Mm. Um, and so then, yeah, we get, uh, I suppose, just like the next part of our story, um, which is um, Guinea-Bissau, I suppose. And the kind of like uh, beginning of some um, movements with Amilcar Cabral, um, who was a freedom fighter there, and fighting against uh, uh, Portugal don't know much about the was it the red carnation revolt or whatever that bought the carnation down f- revolution yeah was it fascism were they still fascist at that point yeah yeah same, was going as, on same down as there? spain and portugal yeah, franco like, was like in power through the 70s wasn't yeah. he what the hell's going on down there suspicious very suspicious but yeah amilcar cabral interesting guy um the most styling guy in the whole documentary go look up some photos of him this yeah guy yeah he's got his like look of a revolutionary down yeah he's really combining the kind of like <laughs> yeah. like his sunglasses all the time yeah which is hat. a good look and then also yeah. like like got a very specific type of hat which he wears like yeah he's got his look he's yeah got his look down when you kind of, when you kind of think of like a south american like revolutionary you kind of have the like 
Fidel outfit slash like Shea outfit. When you kind of think of an African freedom fighter, you kind of get the image of Emilio Cabral in your head. He's a pretty cool guy. But um, he's interesting because he was someone who seemed to be like pretty like, all right, the documentary at least makes the point of like, guys, we're going to do our own thing. Cuba, again, comes into like, hey, guys, we're going to help. This is awesome. You guys rock. Because, you know, once we get Guinea-Bissau liberated, all the Portuguese empire will finally fall, those goddamn bastards. Um, but you get an interesting view from the documentary about Cabral because he's very much a like, you know, you, you know, you see this a lot in kind of like uh, freedom struggles. Like, we will accept your help and the socialist help and this is all awesome. But like, we're going to do our own thing. And he definitely was not explicit. He was definitely not communist. He didn't want the USSR to show up and help. He wanted what was best for his people. And the material circumstances of that time was obviously an anti-colonial struggle, but also one in which he just kind of thought like, you know, he had his own, he had his own thoughts about things, I suppose. It'd be interesting to kind of like read a bit more about those and see what he was all about. But, um, Having said that, did not refuse the, like, heroic aid from Cuba that wound up coming in. Yeah, I, I mean, I, maybe I was mistaken. I got the impression that he was more of a socialist than anything else. More of a socialist mm. than the Mumba was. Yeah, yeah like, The Mumba was very much, definitely. like, forced into the situation. It's yeah. a very different narrative to some extent. Like, some of these instances, these countries and their, um, like, uh, early leaderships, I suppose, are forced to pivot toward the eastern bloc because of the hostile hostile the hostility the experience from the west i mean it's i mean lumumba tried to go to america and obviously it didn't go very well and equally um fidel went to america expecting to um be i suppose greeted with open arms or supported because like this is the land of freedom and like (laughs) i don't know um so I, th- but when it comes to Guinea-Bissau, it's nice. There's this degree of solidarity between the two countries because, mm. like, one of the Cubans is talking and, and basically saying that, like, just like um, Cabral, we in Cuba don't want to be like a puppet of the Soviet Union or a exactly. puppet of China kind of thing. We want to have our. We want to like. We believe in the people of a country being responsible for its own destiny. I suppose for or mm. choosing its own leadership and that kind of thing Mm. um so there is this degree of um solidarity and recognition that they're um engaged in a common struggle i mean this is the narrative of the whole movie really the whole documentary is that like um cuba is this real beacon of hope for so many countries across america and across the the Mm. quote-unquote third world kind of thing because Mm. um it represents the affirmation of or the victory of an anti-colonial struggle uh, and a liberation process kind of thing um so that's why like fidel and che are such like important figures Mm. in this process i suppose or look to with such um, reverence yeah it is interesting right i mean it it raises some interesting questions about like what what could have happened in a lot of these struggles and what the material circumstances just would never have allowed for. Um, because it's interesting, like, you know, someone like Cabral who kind of wanted to develop his own brand of socialism or at least, you know, something that, like, was able to happen in his country. Like you say, you know, forced to pivot one way or the other. Um, because if you want to import anything, you're either going to have to import it from the Soviet Union or from the United States. And especially when you're a country as small as um, Guinea-Bissau, like, you know, you're going to need to. Um, and so it's just interesting in, a, in like an era of like the last era of, you know, like great power diplomacy, 
burgeoning socialist movements, especially coming out of like anti-colonialist movements, like what, what was the ceiling for them? What could have happened? Um, and like, to what extent, um, actual, like maybe like communist or like hard socialist ideals kind of like couldn't have even have happened even with Soviet support, you know? Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a very big question. And, you know, it's not one that can easily be answered. But, like, in this documentary, you certainly get the the point of view that, like, um, obviously the anti-colonial struggle needed to come first. And that was so difficult that, like, even if you labeled yourself like socialist, no matter kind of what you labeled yourself, it was going to be tough to kind of get anything done. Yeah. First of all, I had to win the war, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, given that, like... The Americans and the American, various American allies, particularly in South America, were looking to see socialists and communists everywhere. Yeah, like they, how do you escape? I mean, you, there's such a such a polarized world. You either had to fall on one side or the other to some extent. Mm. I mean, I'd like to know more about the. There was a sort of an unaligned movement of nations, mm. like in the early '60s, um, and I'd really like to know more about that. But I don't. It's not really covered in this. What this yeah. what this documentary covers a lot more is how <laughs> countries were like forced into these two spheres, really, or like if a country had multiple liberation movements, like they'll either pivot toward one or the other, not necessarily because they're directly aligned with those interests, but it's kind of like, yeah, which which of the two evils am I going to like? do I see my objectives being fulfilled most easily with? Yeah. Um, and also there's a degree of like, so yeah, so so it, there is this kind of like very sad story of just like um, independence movements uh, and sort of fledgling nations whose history are sort of like basically like crashed on the rocks of like global real politic of that period kind of thing. So it's mm. quite tragic in a lot of ways. And then also, because the documentary spans basically all the way from 1960 to like the very early 90s or the late 80s, you do get this sense in which um, global historic events are also very contingent kind of thing. A lot of this is set around the, the background contents for a lot of these struggles are Vietnam and then America's defeat in Vietnam. Mm. So in the early 60s, like one of the, I don't know, it's like um, Fidel's stated aim or objective is like we need to create two or three Vietnams yeah. in the world because like this is one of the reasons why he wants to create this international movement um, or wants to support a series of international liberation struggles because like you need to have this sort of global front if we're going to defeat these like, mm. well, in the, in the American imperial power, but also it's allied imperial powers. Yeah. Um, and so in the context of, like, the defeat in Vietnam, there is this slight degree of, like, withdrawal of the Americans in certain ways. They're reluctant to get too heavily involved in certain struggles. So I think, to some extent, like, what happens in Guinea and then really um, the uh, the early stages... Well, the reason why Angola is allowed to go so well, to some extent, mm. from the standpoint of the Cubans and the, the socialist government there is that, like... Um, is that the Americans for a period have taken this back step kind of thing. Yeah. And then eventually develop a much more muscular yeah. uh, attitude. But we've got to be far boy, ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Once our so. boy Reagan gets in power. Yeah, 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 yeah. Boy Reagan. Boy Reagan. <laughs> I mean, it's such a bummer, right? Because it's like, obviously this is a hindsight bias and I would have a completely different opinion if I was like, you know, around back then. But like, you know, you look at you look at someone um, like our good friend Salvador Allende, who's like, you know, I don't want like the Soviet Union. I don't want America. I want Chilean socialism. That's what I want, baby. And it did not go too well for him. And I mean, 
maybe it's just because the Soviet Union was kind of always on the back foot and because America certainly was not. Um, it kind of seems like, you know, hindsight bias again, but like no matter what, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good I mean, there's a degree to which like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the Cubans were definitely kept in business for quite a long time by, course, yeah, yeah. by heavy Soviet support kind of yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. it's definitely it, one of the key factors in lots of these places. Isn't yeah, it? and just by virtue of being obviously like the world's most strategic military objective yeah, yeah. right off yeah, the coast yeah, of Florida, yeah, yeah. you know. Because they're, oh man, we get some awesome interviews with like ex-USSR like uh, politicians and guys kind of like in the inner workings of all this stuff. And so many times, like, when the Cubans go into Guinea-Bissau or when they go into, like, Angola for the first time or whatever, they're, <laughs> the Soviets are, like, just as surprised as the Americans. And they're like, whoa, 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 what are all these planes doing? Where did they come from? They came from Cuba? Oh, my God. Holy <laughs> shit. It's the Cubans. They've done it again. <laughs> yeah, the damn Cubans. Um, yeah, both in Washington and in Moscow. They're like, the Cubans are in the Congo. <laughs> it's so cool. But, I mean, like, so much of it is, like, they kind of can't be like guys get the hell out of here we're gonna like you know do some bad things because they needed cuba they needed yeah. cuba badly it's yeah, yeah, like you know yeah there's a degree to which you 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 basically see it <laughs> you basically see it represented in the interviews with americans where initially they were like it's just the, the soviets the soviets are everywhere and yeah. eventually it begins to realize that no the cubans are operating relatively independently of yeah. like uh moscow and the politburo and what have you yeah um yeah, the most interesting thing, um, well, relative to the failed intervention in the Congo, it definitely inspires a degree of rethinking in the terms of what the Cubans are actually trying to do and achieve and what kind of aid they decide to give. So in Guinea-Bissau, it's very much like a technology, they send doctors, they send logistical support kind of thing. Um, and there's this sort of like fallback possibility that they might send troops, but like, um, it's not their primary way of intervening. And obviously, uh, Cabral doesn't really want troops, mm. but will take the support kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so there's this definitely this shift in focus of how the Cubans intend to actually like operate on this in the world stage kind of thing. And then, um, objectively, it's a much more successful intervention and also like a successful liberation struggle from the standpoint mm. of the Cubans, I suppose. Um it's quite interesting the way it's presented both in terms of people who are describing Cabral's um, strategy, but then also people describing um, how various anti-colonial struggles were won across Africa mm. and I guess across the sort of third world, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna have to do something about that. <laughs> um, uh, the strategy is like, we don't intend to win. We just need to harry yeah. the the colonial power enough that they just like give up or force a negotiating table so that they have to yeah. offer something kind of thing. Even just embarrass them. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, like, yeah, they yeah. weren't even taking barracks. Yeah. yeah, they were just yeah, them haranguing or... them and like yeah. um, attacking and trying to cause injuries and then sort of falling back again kind of thing. Mm. Um, which was an a, a, which worked in Guinea-Bissau, but also. Um, contributed quite heavily to the overthrow of the fascist dictatorship in Portugal as well, because yeah. like so much discord or so much dissatisfaction was sown in the military, in the Portuguese military, because they were sending like tens of thousands of troops to try and sort of like uh, fight this war in Guinea-Bissau. That like it was disgruntled captains in the army that then went on to 
overthrow the Portuguese dictatorship in the Carnation Revolution kind of thing. Mm. Um, I mean, presumably that dictatorship would have fallen anyway, but like, yeah. I guess there is a case to be made that like the Cubans very successfully, by, by giving logistical and technical support to Cabral, allowed that to be a successful strategy, which then mm. not only won them their independence, but like... Yeah. Um, it brought democracy to Portugal, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, right? We we, we got to do some more reading about, like, um, these different anti-colonial struggles because it's, like, what you're describing is kind of, like, almost like a reverse Algeria, right? Where, like, the goal for the Algerians there was to, like, cause enough chaos that eventually the metropole, which is France, will just be like, wow, this isn't worth it. Why are we yeah. still here? And then, you know, that's, that's basically just what happened. But then, like, obviously the disgruntled, <laughs> you know, captains or whatever were not really on the side of, like, democracy. They were like, let's go kill a goddamn De Gaulle and get Algeria back. But then it's interesting, too, because this is just, this is just something that's so interesting about, like, you know, a lot has been said about, like, why those same tactics won't work in Palestine. And it's because, like, A, Israel's just going to respond with, like, 10 times whatever you do. But also, there is no metropole, right? It's just a settler colonial state, so you can't, like, cause enough chaos for any of this stuff to work. Obviously, like, a solution hasn't really been found there for what else you're supposed to do, because you shouldn't just do nothing. But um, suffice it to say, works in getting so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a good point. Um, and the footage, dear listener, the footage of Fidel... And um, uh, Emelcor Cabral hanging out is like, and there's some boys. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, come on. They're like memes of themselves. They're so cool. <laughs> it's like Fidel is like out cooled by this guy who's just like, it's like 31 or something. Yeah, yeah. And it, oh, coolest guy ever. Yeah. I'm going to say. Um, um, I suppose to cap off that story, we should say that um, as with so many of these people, Cabral didn't live to. See the 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 uh, liberation of his country that he was hoping for. He was killed by the Portuguese secret service in like the Classic. late sixties or something. So, oh no, it's a year before. So they they got their independence in like sixty four. Like the Portuguese dictatorship fell in sixty four, and so they got their independence then. And Cabral was killed in sixty three, a year before, mm. kind of thing. But, yeah. Portuguese Classic secret service. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, don't no, I don't know about that one. <laughs> I don't know about that one. I like the sound <laughs> that's of that. Like, yeah. <laughs> let's put a big question mark again. <laughs> yeah, let's put, mm. look into that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't like the sound of those guys. Mm. Um, yeah. CIA, maybe. Yeah, CIA. <laughs> so, any, so, like, yeah, Shay has fallen out because he's dead, basically, I suppose. I don't know what year Shay died. I don't know when Shay died. Shay's either. dead. Yeah. Anyway, they don't talk about him. He, was, he wasn't here. Then we get on to the, the big big intervention which is angola which is just like <laughs> <laughs> it's such a mess i can't even like keep it in my head <laughs> keep a track of like all so, the events and all the various parties yeah kind of thing. Suff suffice it to say a very similar things happen um thing happens in angola which is uh there's a left-wing movement um run by a guy named augustino neto who winds up, winds up becoming the first president well done augustino neto i guess this, that's kind of just like an ml branch of like angolan leftism i suppose would you say yeah 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 according to my very extensive research on wikipedia <laughs> um uh, wikipedia calls everything marxist <laughs> though, so. yeah they they're that well at least the the government up until the early 90s in that country is described as a sort of classic like mm. state plan sort of soviet model yeah which we government. can say perhaps dan the best flag 
going. I think so. The Angolan so. flag. So. Again, look that up. Very cool. It's cool. It's cool. Because you see, like, people attempting to incorporate the sort of hammer and sickle yeah. idea. But, like, it's be- definitely the best, like, reimagining of the hammer and sickle idea that I've ever yeah. seen. And it's also, like, the most, like, it's very kind of, like, I was saying before, it's very kind of, like, what's that get video again like red, red faction or something yeah. like it's a very kind of like sci-fi we gotta look it, up the red faction if a video, if a video game that. studio like doesn't know anything very much about communism or anarchism yeah. and just wants to create a flag for like, like a cool like, like i don't know like a slightly sort of cyberpunk slightly post-apocalyptic space communist space flag stalinism like, that's what you'd come up with yeah it is a it is a gear and a machete instead of uh <laughs> instead of a hammer and sickle it's like damn that's cool um so yeah uh you got agustino neto's faction the commies uh, and then you got two other factions one which i i don't know if we need to mention both of them one of them becomes more important down the line yeah. um, which is unita and basically the way that the colonial powers in their infinite wisdom decided to give uh um, Angola uh, uh, independence is they all got together in a big hotel and seemingly you would imagine intentionally put all three of the factions at different floors in the four-story hotel and put themselves on top. So this mm-hmm. already they were mad at each other being like, why the hell are the commies on the third floor? You know, why the hell are, what are they talking to them about? <laughs> I mean, it really sets the stage for how irreconcilable these parties are going to be yeah, if they exactly. can't even agree on <laughs> which floor whether there is a hierarchy being represented by which floors the various parties I, in the peace talks. I know. I was trying to imagine on. like the most equitable way to like organize these people in a hotel. And I was like, maybe if you all put them like under each other if they're all in the same thing and then you had a big fireman's pole so everybody could get to where they're going they didn't want to install a fireman's pole so you know historical materialism folks look what happened um anyway the colonial power decides um, this is portugal, and portugal. So well, we haven't covered yeah. this in the sense that like this, the, these events are happening now because portugal is also the colonial power in yeah. angola and the portuguese government has just collapsed and so the imperial structure is collapsing yeah um and yeah and they decide the best way to do it is to set a date for when uh uh independence is going to happen it's going to be armistice day november 11th and 1975 1975 and then they're just going to say whoever controls the capital then you guys are the ones we'll recognize and kind of like i think to everyone's disappointment in the western bloc it's the communists yeah and they're just like "Ooh, damn shouldn't have said that yeah 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 yeah. the um um augustine Neto's like forces the mpla are um I think potentially in the strongest position initially, mm. but then of course there are these other two factions, one in the north and one in the south, and one receives a huge amount of support from the Americans, the other one gets a lot of American support, but also um, South African involvement. And they both sort of like launch this pincer attack kind of thing, going for the capital um, <laughs> with the communists in the chase as well, kind of thing. Mm. Um, and it takes a very pointed and well-timed intervention from our um, Caribbean yes. friends. <laughs> Is Cuba in the Caribbean? Sure, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, that ensures that um, Augustino Neto and the MPLA are the ones that eventually do win this fight to yeah. be the 
the controlling party when the, the aforementioned date arrives. Yeah, it's like a movie, too, yeah, yeah, because yeah. the big confrontation right before Armistice Day, right before they're about to get their independence, who's going to control the capital, who are they going to recognize, takes place at a town just outside of the main capital. And basically, like... <laughs> at dawn, over the horizon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> basically, like, again, nobody knows that the Cubans are there, and this time they're there in, like, large numbers, and they bought the big-ass guns. Mm-hmm. And they... Be- and the Rohirian... No, they- <laughs> Well, and they bring what were they? I, we well, I forget We've what they're called, but they bring basically like these missile launchers, not missile. I don't know what you call them. They're the trucks that launch a bunch of missiles. But yeah, yeah, yeah. they've got like forty. Like, yeah, nerds hope, tell us. Yeah, yeah. Military nerds <laughs> let us know. But they're called something like Stalin's Fury or Stalin's like fingers or Stalin's hands yeah, or some yeah, crap. Yeah, yeah, something gross. And they just start. They just start like shelling the the forces that are coming in. <laughs> and obviously, like nobody was expecting that. So the people who were like coming to take the capital just go, okay, forget this. Yeah. And they just duck out of there and they leave. And the Cubans are like, I almost started chanting USA. They're definitely not chanting USA. <laughs> Whatever the equivalent is. <laughs> and Angola. And hey, yeah, communism, baby. Hell yeah. Um, and it's it's so cool. Obviously, it doesn't end any kind of struggle. But that makes it so that on the day, on um, Independence Day, on Armistice Day, the government that is in control of the capital is Agostino Neto's faction, and um, they get recognized kind of begrudgingly by a lot of world powers. But hey, that was the deal. So, you know, um, I guess you're going to have to figure out another way to try and kill these people. Mm. Um, And a long civil war begins from there, in which the Cubans play a pretty vital role. And they all hang out and they stay. It's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, by the end, what is it like? There's basically like half a million Cuban troops in Angola. Was it half a million? Well, I think they say 450,000 by the end. Um, Was it that many? Yeah. That seems like a lot. I'm fairly confident. There were a lot of Cubans, folks. And can we just say the perhaps coolest part of this documentary, Dan? I feel like you know what I'm about to say is the way that the Americans found out how many Cubans were there. Because they had no idea. Oh, yeah, well, that, yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah. I instantly <laughs> of you when they got there at this point. They had no idea how many Cubans were there, and they really didn't know that Cubans were there up until they just started shelling people um, with those missiles. Is uh, They realized that if you took satellite images of uh, the like front of the battlefield, you could roughly tell how many Cubans were there by the amount of baseball diamonds, which is so <laughs> cool. Because apparently there were like regulations in the Cuban army. If you have X amount of soldiers at a barracks, you have to give them a baseball diamond. And it's just like, hell yeah, dude. <laughs> Come on. These guys are so cool. Uh-huh. So yeah. Yeah, folks. Cuba. I mean, it's so it's so funny because it's like, it comes across as so like heroic but adventurous and like purely internationalist because like make a fidel speech is what you will but um when he's talking about this he's basically saying you know this is something you know they ask us why we're here this is something the imperialists can't understand we're here because of the internationalist like solidarity these people are our brothers and we're here to help them we don't have any interest in the material gains in the country we don't have any interest in the oil we want nothing from them this is just like a pure revolutionary internationalist spirit and that's something that you like never ever see for obvious reasons but it's like damn how cool is it that cuba was in the position to do that Mm -hmm. to just like send people out and just just help it's so cool Mm -hmm. dude and it's like yeah yeah you get to see a lot of like firebrand speeches from fidel (laughs) uh, where he sort of yeah as you say like ranting about how uh, Cuba has no interest in the exploiting the national resources of these places they're not interested in taking the oil or what have you um as you, yeah, it's all about internationalist solidarity, which 
to some extent, I was like, yeah, this is cool. I like this rhetoric. But also, I was a bit like, <laughs> surely you do have some interest and i yeah. mean it's the one that i've already stated right like it's the it's the sort of many front strategy for um protecting themselves against american aggression kind of thing mm. um although there, there, there does come a point in this conflict where cuba is actually like remo- removing defensive weapons that are installed in Cuba to defend against a possible American attack and then shipping those to Angola to sort of like fight in that war kind of thing. So there is a point in which they are almost like compromising their own defenses to to, uh, support this struggle. Yeah. And again, this is like you get the interviews with the Soviets and they're like, guys, this was (laughs) not us. It's just like you get the like horns like it's just like the Cubans swinging in and like and the Soviets are like, wow, we did not ask them to do that. But anyway, yeah, as we're saying, this this becomes a very long and bloody struggle. I mean, I feel like whenever you hear the, you know, name Angola, now you think of like you know, I don't know, I'll admit, like, you just go, oh, there was, like, a very long and bloody civil war there. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea how big of a role the Cubans played, and once um, our good friend Ronald Reagan gets into power, it gets amped up quite a bit, and I think it was, we'll get into all the kind of, like, major players and stuff in a sec, but, like, it was pretty horrifying once they start kind of getting into the 80s, and you start to see the weaponry that was being used, because they talk about, like, you know, there was this last enormous battle between all of these forces, you know, some backed by the U.S. and effing apartheid South Africa, the others with a whole bunch of Cubans on their side. Um, and you just start to see these, like, I don't know if they're Apaches or whatever, and, like, these huge missiles and anti-aircraft guns, and it's just, like, all the people there, like, you know, from Angola are making the point of, like, they laugh whenever they bring troops up to the front. And they're like, we're going to protect this city. Uh, when are we going to bring us to the city? And they're like, I mean, it's just a village. Like, yeah. it's, you know, <laughs> they, like, laugh at the people for thinking it was going to be some enormous place. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just very kind of unnerving. And, like, in American schools, I don't know how you get taught about it out here, but, like, in American schools, you learn that not a single drop of blood was spilled during the Cold War because it was a Cold War, and, you know, and there was no fighting at all. Um, and just obviously, you know, to see this, even in, like, a BBC documentary, it's just jarring. It's just yeah. so gnarly, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess we should, like, have a solid disclaimer, which is, like, <laughs> for all our kind of, like, rah, rah, like, Viva Cuba yeah. kind of stuff, <laughs> like, there were, like... Well, that, that that battle that Jack is describing, which happens in like, uh, I think we're all, we're basically into the eighties now, eighty seven, mm. eighty eight kind of thing, mm. um, and it lasts for like six months, fighting over this hamlet somewhere in yeah. the middle of nowhere, um, and in that battle alone, the casualties are like twenty thousand deaths or yeah. something. Um, so we're talking about many, many tens of thousands of people dying, both mm. um, Africans and Cubans. Mm. Um, so yeah just horrendous horrendous yeah war is not good not even but yeah, i feel just, like yeah yeah we don't need to we don't yeah, need yeah. to say that but like <laughs> i think it's worth saying sometimes like, yeah yeah war bad <laughs> war is yeah war is very bad and as cool as it is that like here come the goddamn cubans with the missile launchers it's like boy i wish that didn't need to happen mm-hmm. um but uh, yeah let, i suppose we should talk about um what wound up being the main faction that they're fighting against, which was Unita, 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 yeah, Unita, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were the people that were backed by um, apartheid South Africa, and this is when you get some real sicko interviews with uh, ex-apartheid South African politicians. Um, And the main guy running them is a guy named uh, Jonas Savimbi, 
Um, and uh, real sicko, um, obviously, but you get a lot of footage of him coming to America to meet with Reagan as like a publicity tour. And you get this story that uh, made me a little sick to my stomach, which was, uh, well, two stories, actually. One, the way that they made Americans like Savimbi is because he was a Christian and they were making the point like Christianity and communization is incompat or incompatible and they can never work together. And so the way that they get Americans to like him is they go, how about we take you on a tour of the evangelical churches in Texas? <laughs> we get you like, lots of photo opportunities with nuns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with like the craziest Americans that support Reagan. Uh -huh. So he does that. And then you get a story about like him and Reagan sitting down and this, you know, this wise man from Africa being like, you know, Reagan asking him what he wants and uh, Savimbi being like, oh, President Reagan, yeah, you know, I respect you too much to ask you for weapons. I just want your support. I don't want any guns. I don't want any of this. And uh, what does he say? He says he like wants stingers or stingers. something like that. He's stingers. like, except for stingers. I would like stingers <laughs> missiles. That would be really great. And like the guy, supposedly, this is the story. It's kind of funny if it is. Supposedly the guy, like the advisors next to Reagan was like, whoa, we can't give him stingers. That would be way too much, dude. And Reagan's like. I believe Reagan said this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then supposedly the story is you get Reagan being like, you know what? I like the cut of your jib. We'll give you stingers. And <laughs> the man wants like, stingers. Give him stingers. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh no, this is bad. Yeah, 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 the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The the logic being that like, um, uh, Neto and sort of like the the incumbent, well, the quite well established at this point government of yeah. Angola, like <laughs> has a massive advantage in air superiority, and so like we can level the playing field if we have an ability to take out the government tanks and mm. airplanes kind of thing. This is in the early 80s, basically. This is kind of the thing which it's the kind of like re-engagement of the Americans uh, that um, sort of like tips this conflict back into a sort of like much sort of active and hotter footing kind of thing, mm. which then leads up to this massive uh, conflict in the later period of the 1980s kind of thing. Mm. Do you remember the Cuban delegate's name who was doing a lot of the peace talks? The Cigar Chomp? And no, the, but there uh, were some real characters in the Cuban man, delegation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, That guy was so cool. So when they're kind of eventually like, okay, let's come to peace terms, a lot of it kind of comes down to the Cubans, at least the documentary makes it seem like, because they wanted to get the Cubans out. That was like main thing, get the Cubans the hell out of here. And the Cubans are like, we're not leaving now, actually, because this war is going on for so long until you get rid of apartheid in South Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's one of the points where I'm most like moved by this. It's like, no, yeah. we're just going to stay until apartheid falls. I know. <laughs> it's like, whoa, okay, that's badass. <laughs> um, and you get, yeah, I forgot, I forget the guy's name, but he, when he's having these conversations with these like prick Americans and, um, you know, like Yale guys and these like a-hole guys from uh, apartheid South Africa, he makes a point of every single time he's in the room of having a, like the stinkiest cigar possible just to like make them clutch their pearls. And like, he's like, hey, I come from Cuba and in Cuba we got the best cigars, baby, so I'm going to smoke them all the time. It's so cool, dude. Um... Yeah, they paint the picture of like the Americans coming from like their offices in Washington or wherever that are like both air conditioned and like yeah. they don't smoke inside of kind of thing, and then inflicting them to this sort of like <laughs> smoked filled room um, where the non-smokers are basically struggling to breathe from yeah. the degree of like smoke that's going on, smoking yeah. that's going on. I think with the Cubans, but also from the Americans. As yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny, right? Because you get. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, um, 
it is a slow process which even brings Cuba into being a negotiating partner in this kind of yeah. thing. It's kind of presented like we know the Cubans are in the building. They're on the other side of the wall, like <laughs> listening through the wall to what's going on. Um, can we not just involve the Cubans in the peace negotiations? It would like make things work so much easier. But mm. one of the things you do get a very good picture of in this is just quite how um, sort of like how hot button a topic Cuba mm. is in America and how it's developed over the decades kind of thing. It's been this thing where like you just don't engage with Cuba at all kind of thing. Like we have this totally hostile yeah. uh, position such that we, it's very difficult for us even to imagine negotiating, even in very specific terms yeah. with any delegates from Cuba kind of, on a different continent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> About something completely different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If anybody knew we were talking to any representative of the Cuban regime, like yeah. uh, it's like political suicide in America. Yeah. It's put across as like a very like, uh, light bulb moment when the American diplomat is like, someone got me on the phone and was like, these these uh, talks are missing something. He's like, what? And he's like, the Cubans. And he's yeah, like, yeah. oh my God, what if we talk to the yeah. Cubans? <laughs> yeah, how does it play out? There's somebody, there's some American I, who's a, is a name that I recognize, but I don't remember it now. So mm. like, I don't know, think minor celebrities. <laughs> and they're in Cuba and somebody hands this person a note that's like from Fidel to give to like somebody in the American State Department or whoever, mm. which is like, Fidel's like, you do realize, like, there is a solution to this, like, actually talk to us and we yeah. maybe we can work something out. Yeah, Fidel is literally, like, calling the battle plans from his office in Havana, which is, like, again, pretty cool. <laughs> I hate to say it, but that's pretty neat. Um, and, yeah, this is where the documentary, it, 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 this was one part that I didn't really like because it really made it seem like, there was a stalemate and they got the Cubans in, but there was a stalemate because they wanted an end to apartheid. And hey, uh, we couldn't do that for whatever reasons. So, you know, what were you going to do? And it took a like wise, you know, uh, kind of like swashbuckling South African apartheid guy to come in and take take this Cuban guy to the bar and be like, you know, there's a way that we both win, my friend. Have you ever thought about this? It's like you leave and we also leave. <laughs> and it's like, okay. <laughs> but I don't know. That's where the documentary kind of falls a, a bit because it makes it seem like, um, you know, the the two heroes, the like swashbuckling socialists who like come out in international solidarity and our other heroes, the apartheid guys for solving this. And it's like, what? Huh? Very, very odd. I suppose we should also say that like, the way the documentary begins is in the early 1990s with Nelson Mandela coming to Cuba. And it frames this question of like, uh, you know, like unimaginable to the bourgeois conscience of like, why would Nelson Mandela, a man we've all come to love, go to authoritarian Cuba as his first international trip to thank them for ending apartheid? And it's like, this is that story. And it, so there's like a bit of the bourgeois consciousness in this that's like, both sides came to the negotiating table and figured it out, and that's why we have these three countries now, you know? Um, but, I don't know. Yeah, I did like that frame. I'm pleased you brought that up, and I like that framing for the documentary, which yeah. is like... Um, Fidel Castro's very, and very deliberate interventions in Africa, at least in the mind of Nelson Mandela, like, contributed very heavily to the eventual fall of apartheid and his freedom and then his eventual, like, election to the presidency mm. there kind of thing. So um, yeah. it puts it in very, like, concrete political terms. Or if you want to check off another box as to, like, what was um, the the eventual result of these sort of, like, military interventions, it, that there's yeah. another one kind of thing, like... Um, it's not necessarily clear to me quite how significant a contribution it was to the eventual actual end of apartheid in um, 
in South Africa. Um, but in terms of like severely hampering and destabilizing like both um, like South Africa's like pseudo-imperialist because they were like mm. very active in bordering countries kind sure. of thing. Um, and also ending like Portugal's like both it both ended or contributed to the end of the last colonial power opera european colonial power operating in africa i.e portugal but then also like severely hampered south america south africa's ability to mm. function in a similar way kind of thing so yeah um into i mean in terms of like uh, international <laughs> military interventions like um you can at least identify some ostensible successes. Kind of yeah. Thing. Oh, Un absolutely. Unlike some military interventions, which um, yeah, which Americans tend, yeah. <laughs> tend to be behind. I mean, there is like a very easy, I think, way to frame that, which is just this wouldn't South African like apartheid wouldn't be the first government to fall that was shaky at first, and then as the result of like a war, and that war was like uh, helped quite a bit by the Cubans, mm -hmm. you know, so regardless of whether or not they like snapped their fingers, we're like, we ain't getting out of here until you finish apartheid, or that was just the logical consequence of like a massive war and a shaky government. Um, yeah, make it, you know, either one you want to believe, mm -hmm. I'm fine with that, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> so, you know, um, yeah, I, I don't know. In terms of like takeaways from this documentary, I think it's just an interesting look into like actual material circumstances versus um, what comes across in this documentary is just straight up adventurism. Um, and an interesting balance struck between the two, because as much as we like like to like you know fawn over the Cubans and like what they did and everything, um, at first in the Congo, they were they were just up against way too much, and it was cool and it was like thanks guys, but like please leave because this could get much worse if we find out that like Effie and Che Guevara is helping us, um, and then Guinea Bissau very very helpful, but again you have to look at like you know the material circumstances there, much smaller country and all of this stuff, um, and then as well you know just in Angola where it's like. They say that the Cuban government won't say how many people died, like Cubans died fighting there a lot, though, definitely. Um, at least 10,000? At least 10,000, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's like percentage for the Cuban population. I would imagine that's quite high. Um, and like, I don't know, it, it's, it's, I've been, I've been really kind of trying to think about these questions recently of like, what is possible politically given your material circumstances and how long you need to wait to make things happen and what you should be doing while you're waiting. And given the question now of like, we can wait much longer for like these large changes to happen. These people found themselves in all three of these countries in a very similar situation and that there is a ticking clock and it was just evil to do nothing. Right. And so it got to the point where something needed to be done. Um, and I don't know, I don't, I don't suppose I've really come to any conclusions about that other than that it's just interesting to kind of like, learn from what happened and learn from what the what the bourgeoisie is willing to do to maintain the status quo um and try and see how you can strike that balance in your head of like material circumstances versus acting now um because you know obviously like climate change and colonialism are like two very different things but like there's a ticking clock with climate change you know and so if we want to look to like how things have changed in the past eh, you know it's brutal but like you know it's interesting studying things, history one might call it, the past. <laughs> <laughs> the study of the past. The study of the past. We're getting closer to the present day. We're getting closer. <laughs> We're almost there. Like 30, 40 years, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I, I, mostly what I took away from this is a much better picture of a whole series of historical events. Kind yeah. Of thing. So there's a lot that I didn't know about. I mean, I had no idea about this conflict in Angola. Um, I also, I also like the relationship uh, between Cuba and Portugal and what mm. have you. 
Um, well, yeah, when it comes to like uh, acting and not acting, like there's an in terms of like Cold War politics, it's an extent it's an extension of the the sort of Cold War conflict, which I didn't know anything about. The idea that like Cuba had had this particular form of revolution, and uh, there were so many other countries that could benefit from um, their experience, say, or like might follow a similar road to independence. Um, and also as a function of like their um, plan for to protect their own revolution by like sowing the seeds of other conflicts all around the world, kind yeah, of thing. or yeah, at least yeah. not sowing the seeds, but like aiding mm. um, like-minded anti-colonial struggles. Um, so as a sort of function of uh, Cold War, real politic, not just like necess- not necessarily the politics of the, the two superpowers, but also like Cuba's foreign policy in the world. Mm. Um, it's a very interesting look into that world and that history. Yeah, yeah, no, um, absolutely. And yeah, whether it's a whether it's a whether they were acting at exactly the right moment or whether they were just trying because they felt like they had to do something. Yeah, um, the documentary clearly presents it in such a way that. Um, these events in Africa really provoked the passions of the Cuban leadership, but also the Cuban people kind of thing. There was a huge amount of outrage and horror at what happened in the Congo and what happened to Patrice Lumumba. Um, And it was very definitely like a genuine outpouring of solidarity and a desire to offer offer like internationalist aid, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Beyond it being like a cold calculated piece of like strategy and real politics kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's also fascinating, and it was so interesting seeing the just the different attitudes of um, the people who they interviewed. Because obviously they interviewed everybody. They even interviewed like when we were talking about like Angola, they interviewed people from like all three like factions. Yeah, um, and it was so interesting just seeing the like this is total bias. So take this with an enormous grain of salt. But like, man, the like comedy seems so much like people you just want to hang out with so much more. Like they were joking and they were laughing and they were like making the jokes about the cigars and stuff. Um, so that's also because they won. <laughs> so, you know, they're probably much happier. Um, yeah. Every Cuban in this comes across as very cool. Yeah. And very affable. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Either just very like chill and awesome and like, whoa, also don't mess with this guy or just like huge personality mm. and like chomping on cigars. And as one fat himself, American man called uh, uh, one of the Cubans, he had a rotund personality. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, brutal. Oh, mm. It's all all pretty brutal. Um, yeah, I don't know. Any, I don't know if I have any other takeaways from it other than definitely would suggest watching it, if not for any other reason than just kind of educate yourself about these things and um, more than anything, just be entertained, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I highly recommend. Yeah, it's free on YouTube also. So that's that's good. We like that. Maybe we'll put a link in the description if ah, we're organized enough to do that. Exactly, if we remember to do that. Yeah. Um, all right, well, we don't know exactly what order uh, our next episodes are going to come out in, but we will be talking about Cuba again soon, Dan. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so look forward to that uh-huh. if you're a listener, I uh-huh. suppose. Um, Some more, uh, more slightly less well-considered adventurism. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. They're like, you guys are doing adventurism. We want to do adventurism. That was also another funny part in the documentary when they were like, um, uh, we wanted to do to the Soviets what they did to us in Vietnam. And it's like, what the hell are you guys talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, these are just Cubans showing up. Yeah, like. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, one of the guys, another guy who gets interviewed, an American guy, his... Uh, was this Larry Niven? Was that Niven? No, that... not Larry Niven. <laughs> they no, no, did no, not no. All, uh, interview the author of Ringworld. <laughs> oh, no, goddamn it! There Devlin. Was, no, but it wasn't Larry Devlin. It was another. There was Larry. a guy who was the son of the, the guy who also started the CIA. But yeah. it was Larry something. Ah, eh, fuck it. Yeah. God, some guy this. named Larry. <laughs> <laughs> some guy named Larry. Yeah, interesting point, Jack. They interviewed a guy named Larry. Yes. <laughs> Two of them even. Um, yeah. yeah. All right. But unfortunately, not Larry Niven. Unfortunately, not Larry Niven. Um, I almost went around telling people that Larry Niven started the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Maybe he did. Maybe he did. Um, Maybe he just re- received like CIA cultural funding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Well, we'll be back with some more good stuff soon, too. Um, and uh, yeah, I have nothing else to say. This was a good one. And um, I'll be done. Thanks so much for listening. Lots of love. Lots of love. See you next time. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time. Whoa.